Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. This episode takes a look at a special unit the U.S. Army created during the last months of World War II. They used inflatable rubber tanks, sound effects, fake radio transmissions, and performance art to fool the Germans into miscalculating the strength and locations of American troops. Its mission remained classified until 1996. Rick Beyer talks about the 1,100 men who served with the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops, a.k.a. the Ghost Army, during the war. Mr. Beyer has directed a documentary and co-written a book about the unit and is leading an effort to have the group recognized with the Congressional Gold Medal. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. Mr. Speaker, I rise before you in support of awarding the Ghost Army veterans with the Congressional Gold Medal. This is such a great story. World War II. The Ghost Army had a mission unlike any other. They were recruited in one of the greatest counterintelligence operations of our time, fooling the Nazis with inflatable tanks and mannequins and decoys. It's estimated that they saved tens of thousands of American soldiers' lives. Their work was so groundbreaking that it remained classified for more than 40 years. The Ghost Army and their legacy has never been formally recognized. This bill is long overdue for the soldiers and their families, including of the 1,100 that served Only 11 of them are alive today. 103-year-old Staff Sergeant Stanley Nance lives in my home state of Utah. I've had a chance to get to know him. He and his fellow soldiers, those few, those 11 who are still alive, their families, they deserve the recognition of their service and sacrifice. I call on my colleagues to honor the Ghost Army and award them the Congressional Gold Medal. I yield back. Rick Beyer, that was Congressman Chris Stewart of Utah on the floor of the House with his support for a Congressional Gold Medal to the Ghost Army, something you've been working on for the past five or six years. He explained what the Ghost Army did, but let's start with the legislative process. After that speech was made in early March, you've actually uh, achieved, you and your fellow supporters, achieved a milestone legislatively. Tell me about that. Right. So uh, gold medal legislation is different than any other legislation that the House or Senate considers. And one of the things it requires is it requires two-thirds of the House and two-thirds of the Senate to co-sponsor the bill before it can be even go to committee or come to a vote on the floor. And so a few weeks ago, we achieved 290 co-sponsors in the House after really after years of working on this. Uh, and this so that this legislation that was introduced by Representative Annie Custer uh, and the GOP co-lead is, is Chris Stewart, who you just heard from, from Utah. Uh, and so that now it can uh, either go to committee or go to a floor vote. The practicalities of the things being what they are, uh, it will probably end up going uh, being scheduled for a floor vote on the consensus calendar uh, sometime maybe in the next, uh, you know, next few weeks from the date that we're talking. Well, then, of course, it also has to have approval by the United States Senate. What is, oh, yes. what is that process looking like to you? It's, it's very similar. And um, we, have, we have gone through this a few different sessions, but we think we're, gonna, we're so near to making it happen this session. The bill, uh, as we speak, uh, is about to be introduced in the U.S. Senate, uh, already has 15 or so co-sponsors, even before introduction. 
I think that once we pass the House legislation uh, and can use that to say, look, we are so seriously close, you know, this is an urgency because there's so few of these guys left, that we uh, are going to be able to use that to, I mean, I'm giving away all our strategy here, Susan, but we're going to put on a full court press with the Senate and try to get to the 67 co-sponsors we need by the end of of this year, if we can. And I'll just throw in, you know, this is... um, this epitomizes bipartisan legislation. There is, we have plenty of Democrats, plenty of Republicans. There is no sort of side to this bill. It's just about honoring a, a great group of soldiers from World War II. How did this first get started? It, it's many decades after they did their work, and uh, the recognition effort has been about five, six years in the making. How did it get started as an idea? Let's get them the Congressional Gold Medal. Well, I had written a book and uh, or co-authored a book and made a PBS documentary about the unit and was quite taken with the story. And we can talk about that. I certainly fell down that hole and um, was realized that they had never been honored, that there'd been talk of honoring them during the war. It had never really happened. You know, I was casting around for the best way to do it and uh, came up with the idea of the Congressional Gold Medal, which had been used to honor other World War II units that had uh, had not received uh, honor at the time. For example, uh, the Monuments Men, uh, you have Chinese-American veterans, you have the WACs, uh, various groups from that time who've been honored through a congressional gold medal. So I reached out, I was living in Massachusetts at the time, I reached out to my U.S. Senator, uh, Ed Markey. He was super supportive uh, and jumped on this, as did uh, Representative Custer in New Hampshire, who had the family of a Ghost Army veteran in her district. And that's kind of how we got started five years ago. And I will just say for anybody who is contemplating you know, lobbying for a bill uh, in front of Congress, we had absolutely no idea what we were doing when, <laughs> when we started this uh, in terms of you know how to lobby for a bill or, or or, or what to do. And so we've learned along the way and hopefully have gotten better at it and have managed to get the word out about this uh, incredible story. So you are by profession what? <laughs> That's a great question. I'm a filmmaker and author primarily, although I, I juggle a lot of hats. And I'm also now the president of a nonprofit, the Ghost Army Legacy Project. That's what I really wanted to dig into. So as a filmmaker, how did you first hear about this and say, this is this is uh, worth exploring more and bringing their story to video? Sure. So um, it was about 15 or 16 years ago. uh, I was introduced to a woman whose uncle had served in this unit. And she, her name is Martha Gavin, and she was gung-ho that somebody should make a documentary about this. She herself had just learned the story and... um, about what he had done because it was secret for so long and uh and so i had a meeting with her in um in a starbucks as it happens um and in lexington massachusetts and when she came into the meeting she was carrying uh some three ring binders and they contained her uncle her uncle's name is john jarvie they contained his wartime scrapbooks uh, all of his uh, photos and documents and paintings and sketches because he was an artist and there were a lot of artists in this unit. And I was quite entranced with this story. And so I started at that point trying to work on a documentary 
um, after uh, uh, trying to figure out what to do and where to go with it, ended up trying to do it as a PBS documentary. But it was a, an independent film that we raised money for, and it took about eight years to raise the money, make the film, and convince PBS that they couldn't live without it. And uh, so it premiered in, uh, in, in 2013. But that's how I got started. And I went to the last reunion that this unit had. Uh, that was the first interviews we did were in the fall of 2005 in Washington, D.C. at the very last reunion they had. And so that's that's kind of when I started filming and started getting the stories. And over the years, I interviewed 22 or so veterans of the unit and, and captured their stories. And I'm really happy to have done so. In our hour together, I want to tell our listeners and, and watchers that we're going to play a few bits of the trailer from your documentary so, in fact, they can see and hear these veterans in their own, own words. Uh, but as a filmmaker, I'm sure you don't get this involved with every project that you take on, <laughs> so much that you are the head of an association and have gotten involved in the gold medal effort. What is it about this story that's compelling for you, that, that you've involved so much of your own personal time in it? Yes, <laughs> my wife asks me the same question. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's um, I mean, first of all, it started out for me uh, as a filmmaker, just like any other story. And it's an interesting story, right? It's a, it's a classic uh, uh, man bites dog story. It's unexpected. People are using inflatable tanks and sound effects uh, on the battlefield. Um, and so that's what drew me into it. But over the years, uh, first of all, having met so many of the soldiers, being so impressed with them and with what they did, and really sort of internalizing this idea that these guys went out and used creativity uh, and imagination on the battlefield. I mean, that's unusual. And they didn't do it to, to essentially kill people. They did it essentially to save lives, right? Because if you can deceive the enemy, you're going to be able to make your attack someplace else uh, with much less the loss of life. So this idea of of uh, out-of-the-box thinking, creativity and imagination to save lives, uh, and then that these guys did this, carried out this incredible mission, and then went home and basically kept quiet about it, by and large, for 50-plus years, just really, really struck a chord with me. And I always say that, um, you know, I don't know if, if the Ghost Army is holding on to me or I'm holding on to the Ghost Army, but it just became over the years, more and more of a quest to kind of make sure that these guys whose, whose story I had told and whose cause I had kind of adopted to make sure that they're honored and, and remembered. I just think it's something that as a country, we should remember and celebrate. And the one other aspect of that is that um, these guys come from all walks of life. We often talk about the artists who are in there or people from Hollywood or engineers, and there are all those people there. But there are bartenders and policemen and store clerks and, and all those kinds of people too. And they come from 46 different states and they all come together and carry out this crazy mission uh, where they hardly even know why they're doing it at the time. Uh, and they think it's pretty crazy. And then they keep quiet about it. I don't know. For all those reasons, it really, really did strike a chord with me. And, and I have really adopted it. And it has adopted me. So there are only 11 veterans still alive from uh, originally how many people were in the unit? 
There were 1,100 men who served in the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops, which is the, the Ghost Army unit in Northern Europe. There was a separate, smaller unit of a couple of hundred people in Italy, the 31 33rd Signal Company Special. So overall, you had about 1,300 people, and you have 11 soldiers left out of that group. You have mentioned a couple of family members who, who are still carrying on the, the torch and the family legacy. We have a video of one by the name of Madeline Christensen, who is a high school student, uh, and she chose her, uh, her grandfather's Ghost Army unit as one of her National History Day projects. Let's listen to her, and I want to come back and talk about the role of the families in this project. So this is about the Ghost Army of World War II, so that it was declassified in 1996, so not a lot of people know about it. And so my grandfather was a part of it, and so that's why it's a combination of just getting to know my family history and telling the story about these men who never got recognized. I mean, this quote says it all, but they really had a dignity to their service, and they drew attention to themselves without wanting to just massacre the Germans. They weren't trying to pull attention just to kill all the Germans. They were pulling it away to save American lives and by doing that, saving German lives by not having them fight the Americans. And, I mean, they're so humble about it, but they did it. So I had two questions out of that. Let me first start with her characterization of the role that they had in saving lives both on the U.S. and the German side. Is she right? Yeah, I think she is right. Uh, and and I, Madeline, I met Madeline, first met her four years ago, and she's been a force uh, lobbying for, for this story uh, to get more attention uh, from Congress and elsewhere. But she is right because, and some of the soldiers talk to us about that. Um, you know, if you again, if you think about it, if you carry out a deception uh, and the American uh, troops are able to attack someplace where the Germans are not because they've been fooled by the deception. It's going to save American lives, but it may ultimately save German lives in there as well. Uh, so it's it's kind of a crazy thought, but but it's something that veterans of this unit talk to us about, and and many times we're very proud of that was kind of their role was in many ways a life saving role um, because you avoid a, a grinding head on attack. Uh, that's going to take a lot of lives and you're able to sort of a different form of maneuver. So I think she's absolutely right. But at the same time, it seems they'd be putting their own lives at risk if they're saying hit here, right? Yeah. So that's another aspect of the story is you are often, these they're often right near the front, not always, sometimes they're further back, but they are essentially saying, hey, look at us, we're over here, you know, shoot at us. And they were shot at uh, and they did take casualties. Uh, they did have people killed. They did have people wounded from artillery fire. And I do think that you know, I mean, look, every every guy who was in this unit would say that the real heroes were the, the frontline troops who, who, who fought the war. And I, I will agree with them. But I also think it takes a, a special kind of courage to put yourself in this position with near the firing line, on the firing line, with very little in the way of defensive capabilities, aside from your M1 rifle and, and a few small arms. Because if the enemy had figured it out, or frankly, if they hadn't figured it out, but still decided to attack in the direction uh, of the ghost army, it could have just been um, catastrophic. So I do think that uh, it took a special kind of courage for them to pull this off. And last question about the families. As there are fewer veterans to have reunions, 
I wonder if you're finding that the family members are themselves creating an organization that they are going to stay in touch uh, even after their family members are no longer around? Um, we are, I'm, I'm actually trying to work with some people right now to do that because I think it's a great idea. There was one, there was a veterans organization. And then it, as the guys got older and, and the people organizing it kind of uh, uh, fell by the wayside, uh, it, it sort of uh, came apart. And so I'm working with some of the family members now. I'm not a Ghost Army family member, but I think uh, there's a lot of these people who do want to stay in touch. And a lot of them are working with us to to lobby Congress on, on the gold medal. So I hope that we'll be able to really, that'll be another forum for preserving the story down through the years. So more in depth on the story. First of all, the nickname Ghost Army, how did that come about? It comes out, it's a little murky. It comes about at the end of the war, not something that they called themselves uh, during the war. Um, but if you look at the official history, the official U.S. Army history of the Ghost Army written in August 1945 and classified for 50 years after the war, and it sits at the National Archives. If you look at the cover, uh, it has this image, this image that's on my, my pin here. I don't know if you can see it very well, but it's the image of a ghost throwing some lightning bolts. And so clearly the idea of the ghost and the ghost army was there. Uh, and uh, there was also some news coverage very shortly after the war, before the Pentagon really clamped down on the story, that used the phrase Ghost Army in the headlines. So we know it comes from right around that time, late 1945, right at the end of the war. But we don't know exactly who, who dreamed it up or, or, or how that came into being. Was the mission, their mission of deception, a new concept in the military? Well, no. Okay, so deception is pretty old uh, in the military. I mean, you can go back to the Trojan horse. I always like to say with the Trojan horse, it worked really great that first time. It probably would not have worked so well the second time. I think that the uh, the folks would have uh, figured it out uh, at that point. Um, the thing about the Ghost Army that was new is that it was a um, mobile, multimedia, tactical deception unit. So it's like a traveling roadshow. It can carry out a deception here. They can pack up everything uh, and they can move 100 miles and carry out another deception, you know, here uh, a few days or a week later. And that's something really new in the concept of war. I really haven't been able to find any other unit in World War II or frankly in any other war that was a you know dedicated deception unit that was mobile, uh, that could move around the battlefield, that, that all they did was deception and it was multimedia in all these areas. So that was something new. Why did the military keep its existence secret for so long? Our best guess to that question is that they wanted to preserve the deception capability um, in conflicts that came after World War II. So, um, I mean, it wasn't actually used much uh, in, in Korea and Vietnam, but the idea was, I think, that they wanted to preserve the capability. If you, if you think about, um, you know, you, you don't want to let people know how you do deception or how you think about deception, uh, because maybe then they're going to be able to work back and then be able to spot the deceptions that you might use to fool them. So I think that was the logic of, of preserving that uh, and classifying that for so many years, for 50 plus years after the war. So the, the Ghost Army came into being fairly uh, far into the war effort. Uh, whose idea was it? Do you know? 
Oh, yeah. It's, that's an interesting story. Um, it's actually the brainchild of two U.S. Army staff officers and, and kind of a really odd couple. Um, there was a Major Ralph Ingersoll, and Ralph Ingersoll was a journalist and an author. He was a publisher. He published this uh, very famous, in the 1940s, uh, newspaper in New York called PM. He was a, kind of a controversial left-wing uh, figure. Uh, also had a reputation as being an egotist and a bit of a liar, um, and so um, and and he ends up in the army and he's working in uh, in counterintelligence uh, in the special plans branch in um, in England uh, in London in 1943. And the guy he's working for, Lieutenant Colonel Billy Harris. Billy Harris is exactly the opposite. He's a button-down, straight arrow, West Point guy from a whole family of West Point guys. And so the two of them are thrown together to kind of come up with uh, plans that they can use once the Americans land in Normandy. And they two together, inspired by British tactical deception efforts in northern Africa and Italy, they come up with this idea of the ghost army and they sell it in to the, to the top brass. And if you think about it, there's... There's a feat all by itself because you're you're going to the generals involved. Uh, G- General Jake Devers was the commander at that point. Eventually, Eisenhower takes over the command, and you're saying we we think we ought to create this unit with inflatable tanks and sound effects and all this trickery and have it be available to put on the front lines. Well, I mean, it could go c- catastrophically wrong, uh, or it could be considered a waste of time. But in fact. Um, the, the the brass bought the idea, and uh, that's how it started getting put into effect very quickly. It was about six months from the time that the orders came through to create this unit till they were in action in France. In your research for your book and documentary, uh, did you find any documentary evidence of Eisenhower's knowledge and approval of the unit as it was getting organized? I mean, how far up the chain of command did the knowledge of this go and approval go? I did. I did. There's some cables that go back and forth between Eisenhower and uh, and General Marshall, who's his boss in uh, in Washington, who's the uh, U.S. Army Chief of Staff. And I, look, I don't think the cables were written by Eisenhower and Marshall, but but they're by people in their in their offices. And Eisenhower uh, is writing to Marshall and saying, basically, I want this unit, the 23rd Headquarters, put on the next convoy and sent here to England, we need them right away so they can train and be ready to go into action. And they should have the highest priority. And Marshall writes back, same day, they're telegraphing or cabling the same day, and he says, okay, we can do that, but to do that we're going to have to displace you know, 1,000 combat pilots that are now scheduled to be in that convoy. And Eisenhower writes back, again, same day, and says, okay, we'll take the combat pilots, but get these guys on the next convoy. So he and his office were personally involved in getting this unit to England with a high priority so that once they landed in Normandy, once they started fighting the Germans, that they could have this this deception capability and put it into action. So going back to approval to to actual deployment, how much time did it take to get the units uh, stood up? The unit, uh, if the orders are, um, I think the orders to create it are on uh, Christmas Eve, I want to say, 1944. The actual uh, unit starts to form in January, I'm sorry, Christmas Eve, 1943. 
The unit starts to form in January 1944, and the first elements of it go into action in June 1944. Wow, that's quite a so speedy timetable. Really fast. Yeah, and, and I don't. We couldn't do that today, right? I mean, how could you know, everybody was geared up to do things fast uh, at that point in a way that is really kind of surprising to us today. And they required special skills. So, what kinds of soldiers did they recruit into this effort? So. Um, Probably the biggest body of soldiers, uh, recruited soldiers here, are artists. The artists would have originally been recruited into this camouflage battalion, the 603rd Camouflage Engineers. They probably thought they were going to spend their entire war camouflaging factories in the U.S., far from the front lines. Then when they are forming this unit, suddenly in January 1944, they say, well, we, we better, we'll just pick other, we'll kind of Frankenstein it, right? We'll pick other units and kind of smush them together to make this unit. So they grab this camouflage unit, the 603rd, um, and suddenly they're the visual deception unit. And it makes a lot of sense to have artists involved in visual deception because you're trying to set up a tableau that will be convincing to the enemy. They also brought in a lot of uh, uh, engineers, people who had worked uh, for the telephone company, uh, people who were already expert telegraphers, people who had worked in radio. There was a smattering of people who had worked in uh, theater or in Hollywood, set design, stuff like that. So all of those um, you know, script writers, all of those kinds of people uh, ended up in the unit. But as I said, they also had all sorts of regular people in the unit too and, and people who were not particularly artistic or or uh, uber-educated. One of the soldiers said uh, you could hear in the barracks, you could hear um, Beethoven's Fifth on one end and Pistol Pack and Mama on the other end. So it's really a crazy mix of people. Let's do our first look at that video clip I referenced earlier, just to hear some of these uh, gentlemen in their own voices. We were going to be in show business where we set up one night stands and like ghosts disappear. And the mission was to try to be able to take a thousand men and put them in so that 15,000 men could move somewhere else and not be detected. We were told we couldn't tell our wives or anybody about what we did. It was totally secret. It's amazing the fakery that we were able to perpetrate upon the enemy. It was a little bundle of stuff, all compressed before. You opened the bundle, spread the nozzles around, and inflated it. The artillery piece was good, but that M4 tank, that was the beauty. That was a piece of work. Back of my half-track, I tell my children, was the biggest boombox you ever saw. But it played sounds of tanks and activity. They had recordings of building a pontoon bridge or any type of bridge, and you could hear them hammering away and swearing. And... We were turned loose in town. Go to the pub, order some omelets, and talk loose. 
So Rick Beyer, let's stay with the visual unit for a few minutes and <clears throat> learn more about what they they did. So this was the largest, you said, about 350 of the of the overall 1,100. We saw some pictures in there of the kinds of fakes that they created. Uh, where were they designed and, uh, and, and built? And tell us more about the weight and characteristics and why they were able to fool the Germans with these. So they're using inflatables, uh, obviously, to fool enemy aerial reconnaissance. And uh, they were actually manufactured, designed and manufactured in the U.S. in a hurry uh, for this unit uh, at uh, rubber plants around the country uh, in places like Rhode Island and Massachusetts, uh, Tennessee, Ohio, Pennsylvania, um, mostly by young women, right? That's who the workforce was at those plants at that point. Uh, I have actually talked to one of the women who worked on the tanks. She was a 16-year-old girl named Teresa Ricard. They were designed um, by uh, a designer at the uh, U.S. rubber plant in Woonsocket, Rhode Island. Uh, they they used they tried different kinds of of dummies to fool the enemy, but decided that eventually that inflatables were the best way to uh, be able to transport them quickly. They didn't break too easily, and they're built on a uh, you can't really see it when you look at that video. They're built on a, a framework of uh, like a skeleton of inflatable tubing. And the inflatable tubing has multiple inflation points and, and segmenting so that if it's hit by a piece of shrapnel, it, it's not going to all just, you know, kind of be like a cartoon balloon and go up in the air. Uh, it's going to sag or something, but you can repair it and then hopefully uh, continue to, to, to operate it. And they didn't just have, I mean, people think, oh, inflatable tanks, cool. But they had inflatable trucks, and they had inflatable artillery of every kind, and they had inflatable jeeps and just everything that an infantry or armored division would have. And, uh, you know, these are being used, you know, they're not particularly realistic from, let's say, uh, 100 feet away, but you start to get uh, maybe a quarter of a mile away or more, and they can look very realistic. And, of course, you've got all these artists now who are involved in, in setting them up, so they're also doing things like camouflaging them, but camouflaging them a little badly so a piece sticks out here or there. Give a clue to the enemy and let them piece the story together. And so they were used sometimes in small numbers. In some operations, they literally had hundreds of these spread out in kind of a 3D masterpiece spread out all over the battlefield. Did they overfly to see how they would look from the air as German planes were going by? They absolutely did. We have photographs of some of those overflights that they made, which were would always be actually much um, lower than the the German flights. So in the in those photos, you, you you're like, well, maybe you could tell that they were inflatable, but that's much closer than any German reconnaissance plane is going to get. But they absolutely did that. So let's move to the second piece of the deception, and that's the Sonic unit. What was their role? Well, <laughs> as you can imagine, if a, if a if we want people to believe that an armored division or an infantry division is moving in at night, there better be sounds of trucks and tanks on the move and men digging in and all that sort of thing. So they had a sonic unit, the 3132nd, that had equipped with half tracks. Those are uh, armored vehicles that had giant speakers mounted on the back, 500 pound speakers and they'd recorded all sorts of sound effects and they mixed them together to then play a show that would match whatever deception they're doing so let's say that you want people to think that an armored column is coming in and then going up a hill and then going down a hill and stopping at such and such a point where you mix those sounds together and then you play them from not just one truck but like from a series of trucks along the road 
and you time it so that the sound actually moves. If you can sort of imagine this, the sound moves down the road. Apparently it was incredibly convincing. And we have many reports of other American units who reported uh, hearing, you know, and believing that a unit was moving in because of these sound effects. Well, today any of us can record pretty accurate sounding audio with our phones. What was the technology available to these soldiers at the time? So they used the same methodology that, um, you know, record companies used to record Frank Sinatra. Uh, they had, uh, they recorded them on 16-inch uh, glass transcription discs. It looks like a giant record, uh, but it's instead of playing the record, we're recording the record with a stylus in there and playing the sound into it. And then they took that sound uh, and they would mix it to... Uh, uh, a technology called a wire recorder, which is the predecessor of the tape recorder. Uh, hardly anybody remembers the wire recorder, but they recorded the sound on these wires that are about the consistency of fishing wire. It takes about two miles of wire to have 30 seconds of sound, and that's what they played it back with. So believe me, it was as state-of-the-art in 1944 and 1945 as the latest iPhone is today. How, how big was this device? The wire recorder, um, so, I, you know, about so big um, uh, is the actual recorder. Then it's going to play into a, a, an amp uh, that's going to be um, the same size or larger to get the amount of amperage. And the speakers were probably about as tall as I am. So probably five, well, I'm six feet tall, but they're probably five, six feet tall. Um, uh, you know, they're, they're huge. They're heavy, heavy duty things. They had to, to crank them up on a whole mechanism and, and put them up. And then when they were done playing, then they would crank them back down and put a cover over the half track. So it looked just like any other half track. Yeah, I'm trying to uh, envision the logistics attached to this, <laughs> moving this, this whole operation into an area and not being detected by the Germans as they set this all up. Right. Well, and, 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 and guys talk about that. So, well, first of all, in, in a sense, you want to be detected, right? I mean, with the sound trucks, you're, you're planning this from some ways away. You're creating this moving sound thing. You want the enemy to hear it. Then you get up to where you want them to believe your forces are, and you're setting up your inflatable tanks. And I think it was a little nervy for the soldiers to be out there. Maybe they're a half mile from the front line. It's dark. Uh, they're they're running their air compressors to set up the tanks. They always said they wondered if if that would give them away. Um, you know, I think you have to. You also have to pick your moments with care. You obviously don't want to come, you know, right up super close to a um, a massive enemy force that's right there. You want to be careful in the ways that you deploy this unit so that you're not going to run into problems. The third unit was a radio and signal unit. What was its job? So. Uh, once again, let's imagine that we're we're trying to um, deceive the enemy. Uh, if a division is moving in, they communicate it by radio. You know, there's a large divisional radio set. There's smaller sets for uh, battalion and regiment and company. Uh, and so if you can duplicate that radio network and you have all this, it's all done by telegraph signals, Morse code, and you can duplicate that traffic, uh, it's going to seem to any German uh, intelligence analysts listening in, listening in 
as if a real unit is there. Uh, and even if it's encoded, they were very sophisticated. The Germans were. They could recognize the sending style of American operators. They could recognize certain key elements to say, oh, well, that's the 4th Armored Division or that's the 75th Infantry. So you have this phony radio network, and the Ghost Army soldiers actually learn to impersonate the sending style, the telegraph fist that they call it, of the uh, radio operators in other units. Um, and so you're putting over the air what you hope is very um, convincing uh, imitation of the radio network of a real unit. And again, it can be done on the move. So you could start it in a convoy 50, 75 miles away. You know, radio can be heard a long ways away. And then it's getting closer. It's moving to a certain spot on the line. And then if you if you imagine taking uh, all of these techniques, uh, plus the special effects that they did, which we can talk about, they're all coordinated. They're all telling the same story. So we've come up with a phony story. And I think this is the most, this is sort of the thinking part of it. You come up with a phony story. And then we're, we're trying to send little information about on all these channels that reinforce this phony story. And the enemy doesn't have to pick up everything that we're doing. In fact, maybe it's better if they only pick up bits and pieces because then they're going to put them together and they're going to tell themselves the lie based, oh, we pieced together this information. Now we know what the enemy is doing. And that was kind of the magic of how it worked. Let's go back and listen to another set of clips. You mean we're asking for the enemy to fire on us? The answer was yes. At that point, we all came to the conclusion that this was a suicide outfit. And a shell landed in front of us, and then the shell flew over our heads and hit the truck behind us. People probably no more than 20, 30 feet away from me that lost limbs because of shrapnel just falling all over. If you're in the wrong place, you can be dead. If you're in the right place, you can live to be as old as I am. So, Rick Beyer, the Ghost Army essentially became stage actors on a battlefield play with life-or-death consequences. Uh, how were they able, in fact, do you think, to deceive effectively the very skilled German army? Well, I think that they, they pay a lot of attention to detail. I mean, I think that all of deception is, uh, you know, you have to pay attention to detail, you essentially have to employ some of the same techniques that a magician uses or, or other performers to create their illusion. And, you know, they learned their trade on the go. So I think that early on, their deceptions were not particularly convincing. I mean, the enemy didn't figure out that they were, that there was a deception unit operating. They didn't attack them or something, but I don't think they, they made a lot of difference in their earliest deceptions. And I think it really took until, you know, fall of 1944, when the Americans are pushing in towards the German border, that they really got up to speed and really started to be able to do what they did. So it's a combination of having, you know, good, good technology, um, uh, uh, and then practice, right? You get, you get better at it as you go along, as long as you don't get killed along the way. And they developed, Susan, uh, when they were in Europe, they developed a fourth dimension of deception. And, and it, honestly, in some ways, it's my absolute favorite, which is called special effects, which, which literally, as you said, turns them into actors. So the idea is, 
if we are pretending to be the 75th Infantry Division, well, what if the Germans have left some spies around? We we might have all these inflatable tanks and we might have all these sound effects, but they're going to expect to see the 75th Infantry Division. So we're going to put the patches on our shoulders. We're going to put the bumper markings on our vehicles. We're going to drive back and forth through town so that they see that they're, oh, look, the 75th Infantry Division really is here. Maybe we need to go even a bit further. If the 75th Infantry Division is here, there's got to be a general. He's got to have a headquarters. Uh, and you've got to be able to see him coming in and out of that headquarters sometimes. Again, if the Germans have left spies behind after they've retreated across France and into Germany. So ghost army soldiers would impersonate um, colonels and generals, high-ranking officers. You'd have a major who puts on a couple of general stars and is being driven around in a jeep with armed bodyguards hoping somebody will see him and report, oh, there's Major so-and-so of the 6th you know, Armored Division or whatever it is. And so that was kind of the, the final piece that maybe made it uh, completely convincing. Tell the story of their September 1944 mission holding the line for General Patton. Right. So um, in September 1944, uh, Patton had just raced across France with the Third Army towards Germany. He was focused on trying to attack the the city of Metz, which was fortified. Um, And he was sending, it was kind of a meat grinder of a battle, to be honest. And he was sending almost all of his troops into there. And there was a a gap that opened up in the front line. It's uh, around 25 to 30 miles or so. Uh, north of Metz, between there and Luxembourg City, and uh, and we didn't have any troops to put there, and then right, and so if the Germans realize there's a gap there and they get organized, because the Germans were very good at reorganizing and adapting to circumstances, they could attack and get behind Patton. So, the the Ghost Army was at that point in Paris. They got orders like the orders came down at eleven in the morning. By four o'clock, they were on the road. Uh, and by the next day, they're there um, basically about a mile from the front line, setting up and pretending to be the 6th Armored Division. Uh, and so you have um, 1,100 guys who are pretending to be essentially 15,000 people with, with tanks and heavy equipment and all sorts of stuff and covering a, almost a 25-mile uh, portion of the front uh, with just a few uh, regular army troops as well. And so the thought was, well, well, we'll do this for two or three days just to kind of hold that gap, and then we'll be able to move uh, a real division in there. Um, and there wasn't a division that freed up or could get there in time. So they ended up holding this for three days and four days and five, six, seven, and eight days, I think, overall. And as they time went on, Germans were moving forces sort of towards them, positioning across the river uh, from them. Uh, they were getting German infiltration into their line. So every day they are worried that this is going to be the day the Germans figure this out and kind of blow through here. But they managed to hold on for those uh, eight days. They managed to help uh, save uh, did they save Patton? I wouldn't go that far. But they managed to hold that piece of the line. Uh, and then I think the 84th Division came in and took over for them at that point. And it, I think in some ways it's their most – they do bigger deceptions, but I think it's one of their most impressive deceptions. The following winter, you described as being one of the harshest that Europe had seen in decades. How did it Im- impact their ability to do their jobs? Well, I mean, I think it it made it hard for for everybody uh, in the Army uh, at that point to do their jobs because um, they are often living outside 
Um, and uh, they are probably at that point not using inflatables as much as they're focused on the sonic deception and the um, radio deception but and the special effects that we mentioned but it's it was pretty brutal conditions um, um, guys who who you know you you, you were limited in, in what fires you could make limited in in having hot food and again it wasn't it wasn't it, it was worse. It was absolutely much worse for, let's say, the 101st Infantry or the people who are on the front line. But it was uh, it was pretty debilitating. And a lot of the veterans talked about that and remembered being out for many weeks, carrying out these deceptions, unable to have a shower or a bath, unable to essentially clean themselves, uh, unable to do much of anything except just try to stay alive and and and, and not, not freeze to death while they're doing this. Understanding that every one of their missions were inherently risky, which would you say was, in fact, the most dangerous? Well, um, I think that Bettenberg, which we just talked about, was probably the most dangerous because it went on for the most period of time. And the Germans were still, you know, um, it was before the Battle of the Bulge, there were still a lot of German forces um, that were, you know, prepared to strike against the Americans that were in good shape. Um, they have a, a big deception at the end of the war, um, in, in March, 1945, it's sort of a bigger deception, but I think the German army is a little back on their heels at that point. So I don't think it ends up being as dangerous a deception. Of course, another way to look at it would be which deception actually turned out to be the most dangerous, um, and they had a, a, a relatively small, short deception called Operation Buzonville uh, in early March 1945, in which two Ghost Army soldiers were killed and 12, of 12 or 15 were wounded. So, I mean, that was, in fact, the, their deadliest deception. And, 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 you know, it's not even, it's sort of a, almost a blip as far as the deceptions go, but that was the one where the German artillery fire caught them as they were just about to leave and uh, kind of hit them pretty hard. And in total, how many missions? Well, uh, there's 22 deception missions in Northern Europe. And then the, the unit that, carry, that, uh, that did deceptions in Italy, they did two right before the end of the war. So you've got 24 deceptions in all. What documentary evidence did you find on the German side that it worked? Um, it's fairly minimal evidence on the German side, in part because of records being destroyed uh, and in part because sometimes if it works, it's, it, it's hard to have actual evidence. It, uh, it's easy, it would be easier to find evidence if it didn't work, right? Because they would say, look, there's this fake unit here. Um, but we did find uh, some German maps that um, showed American divisions where the Ghost Army uh, suggested those uh, divisions were and where, in fact, different places where they actually were. We also uh, did find um, that there were uh, U.S. Army reports of prisoner interrogations that showed that the prisoners believed that, let's say, the 6th Armored Division was in a certain spot when it wasn't really there. So we know for a fact that they were fooled, uh, and we know for a fact that there's no evidence at all that the Germans ever cottoned to the fact that there was a deception unit operating against them. Uh, before we talk about their legacy and the aftermath of the war, tell the story, uh, the aspect of the story of all of the sketches and paintings that this unit created, almost as a sidebar activity, but really became a personal record of the war. Yeah, so uh, you can imagine in this uh, uh, camouflage unit, 
there were, as you mentioned, about 300 guys, and we have identified more than half of them were artists. And they're young artists. They're either art school graduates. Some of them haven't gone to art school yet. And so now you've transported them to Europe, uh, sort of the center of the art world also, by the way. Uh, and uh, they are in this very new environment. I don't think any of them, hardly any of them had left the country before. Uh, and so they are painting and sketching in their spare time. And, you know, it's not part of their their mission, but it's just the same way that I might keep a diary or somebody else might take photographs. They are painting and sketching. And, uh, you know, it's bombed out buildings and orphan children and, um, uh, you know, refugees and all sorts of stuff. And it's this really intimate uh, and unique visual record of the war. And, and for the soldiers who are in the unit, um, at times, for some of these artists, it felt like they were in sort of a, sort of a, a traveling art seminar because you have all these other artists and you're you're doing this together, um, and people are learning from each other. And many of them went on to art careers after the war. Some to quite famous art careers. Uh, the fashion designer Bill Blass was a 21 year old kid in this unit. The famous minimalist painter and sculptor Ellsworth Kelly. Uh, served in this unit and um, uh, uh, the wildlife illustrator Arthur Singer and a whole bunch of other people whose names wouldn't mean anything to you but who had amazing art careers. The portraits that you have in your book and in your documentary um, are are very compelling and I'm wondering a problem of course was the secrecy of this unit for such a long time but was there ever an effort by either the military or an organization like the Library of Congress to gather this collection for permanent archival purposes? So I'm not aware of an effort uh, to do that, um, you know, before uh, we started to, to do stuff. And, and I have been involved in trying to preserve what we can, not necessarily all in one place, but at least preserve it. Because so much of this stuff is in the hands of families and, you know, is then subject to somebody somebody dies and somebody else doesn't know what it is and it gets thrown away. So a bunch of material has been donated um, um, through the auspices of our organization to the National World War II Museum. There's other material that has been donated to the U.S. Army Art Museum, and I think there's a a big donation coming up there in the near future of, of some of Arthur Singer's works, and he was a tremendous illustrator. Uh, there's also been a number of Ghost Army works. I've uh, facilitated uh, donations to the the Anne Brown Military Collection at Brown University. So there's three places uh, that uh, each have multiple now Ghost Army artists represented. So at least there's maybe there's not one focus, but there's some foci of, of Ghost Army art, and, and we're trying to, to direct more of it in that direction as we can. We have about nine minutes left. Let's go back to our third and final piece of video from Rick Byers' documentary. You go up against the best army there is and the best group of soldiers, and you can dupe them successfully. Pat yourself on the back. There are German records that show that some of the deceptions were taken, hook, line, and sinker. The 23rd did not win the war single-handedly, but I think it would have cost a lot more American casualties had they not been there. 
You know you saved lives, you don't know how many you saved, but you know you saved them. They estimated that we saved between 15 and 30,000 lives with our maneuvers. But you know, even if we don't want to save 15 or 30, it was worth it. One mother or one new bride was spared the agony of putting a gold star in their front window. That's what the 23rd headquarters was all about. So, Rick Byer, when the war was over, what happened to the 23rd? Uh, it was disbanded uh, in uh, November of 1945. Um, it was pretty much just shut down. And uh, the guys were, most of the guys were let out of the army uh, or, you know, either before then or transferred to other units and let out shortly afterwards. Their mission was still secret. So what were they able to tell their friends and family about what they'd done during the war? Complicated story, Susan, because um, their mission was still secret and some of them were told that and some of them don't seem to have been. Um, And so you had some mixed uh, experiences. Um, And one thing that happened at the end of the war that that kind of muddies the secrecy story is that there was a a soldier named Sebastian Messina in uh, Worcester, Massachusetts. And he goes home on leave in August 1945, uh, July, August 1945, after they've come back. He tells the whole story to a local newspaper. They put the story in print. They send it to the censor. The censor says, you cannot put this story in your newspaper. This is secret. And so they spike it. But then the war ends and the censorship office closes and they think, well, I guess it's okay now. And they print the whole story. So there's this from that article, there's this flurry of publicity, including a New York Times story at that time uh, about it. And then the whole thing kind of just gets clamped down on after that. Most of the guys did not talk about it. Some of them were married for 30 years and didn't tell their wives. Some of them didn't know secrecy was lifted until they saw the documentary that I made, which was 60 years you know, after, um, after the end of the war. Uh, some of them didn't take the secrecy part that seriously. I think ultimately from the point of view of the Pentagon, it didn't really matter if people knew that we did some deception or they knew we used inflatable tanks. What they didn't want people to know is sort of all the details of how that worked out. So did the military ever officially recognize their work? No, the military has never, I mean, by recognized, you know, in terms of a, a, a unit citation or something like that, that has never happened. And I think it's it's really deserved uh, to happen. And, and, you know, that's why we're going after the Congressional Gold Medal now, because I think that recognition is, uh, is, is unlikely to come, you know, from the U.S. Army 75 years after the war. They're, they're on to other things. And uh, so we're trying to uh, work with Congress to honor this unit in the way I think they would have been honored if it wasn't being kept secret at the time. On your Facebook page, you've got some photographs of current members of the military who are still wearing a Ghost Army patch. Does their legacy extend in today's into today's military? Absolutely. So today's uh, psyops troops, um, psychological operations. Um, many of them operating out of Fort Bragg, they consider the Ghost Army to like be their inspiration. And in fact, I think they have one. You know, they they've created these patches using the Ghost Army logo for their uh, airborne uh, psyops unit. Um, and uh, you know, so they have really 
taken this story on and and when we opened a, a museum exhibit at the National Archi- at the uh, National World War II Museum there was a delegation of soldiers army soldiers from Fort Bragg who came down to meet and talk with the ghost army veterans because they 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 that story is so important to them they consider that unit their their progenitor if you will So we've just got a couple of minutes left. Uh, Why don't I ask you to just use a bit of time to summarize what you believe after all this time and effort, the 23rd Special, the Ghost Army's uh, contributions were to the U.S. war effort? Well, I think first and foremost, uh, this unit, the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops, um, uh, was an example of using imagination and creativity to save lives on the battlefield. I think that they clearly, in multiple operations, um, made things uh, easier and better for attacking U.S. forces in ways that never got into the history books. You hear all the time about George Patton, you know, driving on Bastogne uh, during the Battle of the Bulge, you know, and the commander there with the surrounded 101st uh, Airborne. You never hear about the Ghost Army deception that tried to draw German forces away from George Patton. So oftentimes in these famous activities in World War II, this unit of 1,100 men were carrying on an unsung activity uh, that helped make possible uh, the famous attack. When they were crossing, the American army was crossing the Rhine River, uh, the 9th U.S. Army, the Ghost Army was there to draw the Germans away from that attack. So I think that they contributed to American victory. They saved American lives, and as we discussed, they probably saved German lives, and they demonstrated that you can use creativity, you can use imagination, you can think out of the box, and that can be really beneficial to our country, to our cause, and they showed how people from all different backgrounds, um, you know, all across the country can work together to do like a crazy thing like this and, and make it happen. So for all of those reasons, I think it's an inspiring story. Um, I have been inspired to work on, on this for many years and to lobby Congress to award them a Congressional Gold Medal. And we have, you know, I urge anybody who's inspired by this story to dig in and, and learn more about it and to reach out to their congressman, to their senator, and ask them to co-sponsor this and support this and help make it happen. So two last questions. Uh, in an era of drones and ongoing visual surveillance, could this kind of operation ever exist today, or is it a story of a certain place and time? The technology that the Ghost Army used, you know, inflatable tanks and sound effects, that may be largely displaced by modern technology, but the ideas of deception absolutely still continue. It's just that nowadays they might be using TikTok and Twitter and other things like that to send out their phony messages. Last question is about you. Um, we talked about the amount of time you're spending on this, but how do you think this, your association with these people and this story has, has influenced you or changed you? Well, this has been the greatest honor of my life to to tell the story, to to work with these soldiers, um, uh, you know, I, I there has been nothing else in in my life quite like it, and 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 um, I don't know how it's changed me, but it but it's made me really uh, appreciate what they did, and and uh, and I think I've internalized a lot of it, and I think I'll be I'll, it'll be part of my life until my life is over. 
for people who are interested, you've got a very uh, visual website available that people can learn more and see more vignettes. What's the web address for that? Our website is ghostarmy.org. Not terribly hard to find. And also your book is still available wherever people buy their books. And finally, is it still possible to watch your documentary if people are interested? The documentary is on Amazon Prime. If they have Amazon Prime, it's free and they can watch it. And we have various screenings, online screenings from time to time. Just, you know, check our website, consult our Facebook page. Rick Beyer, thank you for spending an hour with us to tell us the story of the Ghost Army of World War II and also of your own efforts and those of other family members and friends to have this unit awarded the Congressional Gold Medal. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Susan. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.